Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. Today, Karen concludes her exploration of expressive arts therapies with the second part of her conversation with Eliana Gill on the use of symbolism and metaphor in attachment-based therapy. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here from Chaddock. And we are about to embark on our final interview in the series that we have had going on with the podcast, which has been the use of expressive arts therapies in attachment-based work. And for this grand finale, I have a very special interview lined up with Eliana Gill. So most of our listeners are going to be familiar with Dr. Gill, but just to give a little bit of background, she has done so much. Dr. Gill was born in Ecuador and Spanish is her first language, but her family moved to the United States when she was 14. Uh, She originally moved to DC, then San Francisco. She's then moved back to the coast again. In the meantime, she just continued her education in so many different ways. She does have her doctorate degree in marriage and family therapy. And I mean, I could take the whole podcast with talking about all the different kinds of training and expertise that Dr. Gill has. She's a writer, a therapist, a lecturer. She has held many leadership positions in terms of work in child abuse prevention, in her involvement with the Association of Play Therapy. And she also has written a number of books. Again, you know, too many to list here just in this introduction, but some of my favorite Favorite books by Dr. Gill are Helping Abused and Traumatized Children, Play and Family Therapy, and Post-Traumatic Play in Children. One of her recent endeavors that well, somewhat recent, I, I guess. Um, it's It's been around, I believe, since 2013, is the Gill Institute that she founded in Fairfax, Virginia. This is a place that provides therapy, but she also developed a an additional training component called the Starbright Training Institute, for child and family therapy. So there in Virginia, um, I've had the uh, honor of actually teaching a TheraPlay course there. So I have visited that wonderful, magical place that she has founded, um, the Gill Institute and Starbright, Starbright Training. So Dr. Gill will be coming right up. What we're gonna be talking about is the use of symbolism and metaphor in attachment-based work. So hang on just a minute and she will be here. Hello, Dr. Gill. 
I am so happy to continue this conversation with you again this week about the use of metaphor in our work. So thank you for, for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me again. <laughs> yes. So, you know, in reflecting, I like to kind of have a tie-in between part one and part two of, of these interviews. And you know, when we ended last time, we were talking about pacing and patience and holding back on interpretations. And I just think that that is um, really, th that's a message to the whole field right now. We, we are having lots of problems with this, just with whatever it is, whether it's our own inability to tolerate the not knowing or, or, or if it's, I feel all this pressure to be the expert, or I have to do this in this many sessions, or my manual says I should be here. Um, so I just think that that is such a critical and important message just in general, not, not even just related to use of metaphor and symbolism. So I'm yeah, so glad you're emphasizing that. I agree with you wholeheartedly that there's so much pressure to do things in particular ways or to use evidence-based programs or there's there's just, I don't know if it comes from funding sources, insurance companies, um, programs that are pushing their clinicians to have 12 sessions and let's get more people in here because we have to show we're serving more people. But it's so, um, so challenging to work under those circumstances. I've, I've worked very hard to kind of get myself into situations where I have a little bit more control over what I do. Yes. Um, and then there's the internal pressure sometimes that people feel because the parents are coming in and saying, there's no change. We need this to change now. And so I think as play therapists, um, we sometimes are. Uh, susceptible, vulnerable to feeling that kind of pressure as well. Like, you know, something has to happen, but things take their own time. And uh, yes, it's, it's something we have to be ready for that people yes. to work at their own pace. At least I feel that way. Yes. Um, I also wanted to um, mention, I, I was talking a little bit about uh, responding to uh, the metaphors of, of clients in the last um, session. And I think that the other part of it is um, actually introducing metaphor for clients to, to react to and to respond to. And the first time I learned about this was maybe 40 years ago, I was doing a group for adult survivors and it was so poignant and so distressing at the same time to find that people felt that there was something inherently wrong with them. And that's why they had been abused mm. that somehow they had done something to make the world mad at them or to make their parents not love them. And I really remember being at home and thinking, how do I help them understand that or view that in a different light? And it occurred to me that I could use seeds and seeds all look the same when you put them in the, in your hand. And so I had this whole process where I bought all these little plants and, and I put all these little seeds out and I asked everyone to pick. And I said to them, I wanted to take the, wanted them to take the planters home and just take care of them. And I would check in weekly. How are your plants? Are you watering them? Are they in the sun? And then I did an experiment 
<clears throat> where I had one plant that I kept kind of in the shadows and didn't water very often. So my plant was really small and didn't look very, very good. And then I asked them at the end to bring their plants in and they were amazing. I mean, people had plants that were blooming and, and I showed them mine. And then I asked them about how they had taken care of theirs. And I'm, then I said to them, you know, what's happened to mine <clears throat> is that I'm not here all the time. And the air conditioning goes on and off. And sometimes there's no one here to open the lights, the shade so that the plant gets light. And so I think that's what happened. And so suddenly you could see these little wheels turning about the difference. And, and, I, and I started kind of just having a conversation. Yeah. So what do you think makes that difference? And then they started realizing, oh, my gosh, it's what's given to the seed. It's what's the environment of the seed. It's how the seed is taken care of. That's what makes a, a plant either really thrive or begin to have struggles. And it was beautiful because they got it on a level that somehow in their analytical brain, they couldn't receive. And they, they talked about how they had gotten that message. And then they said, and now we have to take care of your plant. <laughs> and so they took turns taking it home and they brought it back to life. <laughs> and again, the lesson was, if you nurture something, if you put it in the right circumstances, that seed is gonna do what it was intended to do. It will reach its potential. And all of you have had situations where you haven't been nurtured. Anyway, that just changed my whole trajectory of how I looked at how to bring a metaphor in in a concrete way so that people could really understand and learn you know what that what that was all about on such a different level it was a beautiful thing and i learned from that so much and that's really what inspired me to move forward and to kind of try to react when people give me a metaphor um, to try to make it concrete, to try to value it, to try to help them see it. Uh, because sometimes, as I said, clinicians hear the metaphors, but they let them just sit there. They don't really bring them into the therapy. Um, and so yes. later on in these groups, we would always talk about, oh, there's the plant again. There's the plant in a, in a soil that isn't really helping them grow. Mm -hmm. And they would keep bringing that in all the time. They had really integrated it. They had mm -hmm. really gotten it partly because it was kinesthetic and there was a pride, a mastery about getting these plants to grow. Um, it was it was beautiful. Anyway, I've never forgotten that. And yes. I think about the importance of that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Beautiful story. Um, I, I just love all the wonderful case examples you're giving us that that makes this come alive, too. You, you know, know Karen, also TheraPlay, I know you're very, you do a yes. lot of TheraPlay, but yes. TheraPlay has this ability also, for example, the tug of war, you yes. know, that families in conflict, sometimes having that tug of war and talking to them about what was that like? And did it feel comfortable to you to be in that? And, yes. and how are you feeling now? And they might say, oh, you know, I get so tired doing that over and over again. Okay. So that's what the tug of war feels like, you know, on a very visceral level. Mm -hmm. and if you weren't doing the tug of war, 
what other kinds of things might you think to do together that don't involve that aspect of that kind of tension and pulling and and all of that and just coming up with something that might feel different the magic the magic carpet ride being taken yes. on the magic carpet ride these are all beautiful metaphors that you can continue to use or the rocking the the children in place and having the parents use that that material to just put the children in and then rock them even if they're eight years old it's Mm -hmm. all metaphor but it's embodied metaphors now yes yes you know i uh, that's such a great lead in um because i was thinking about embodied metaphors and as i was thinking about you and your background in, in marriage and family therapy I started thinking about Virginia Satir and this family sculpting. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's like, I, I don't know that I, I I don't know if I called that a metaphor before, but oh my gosh, that's a metaphor, right? Absolutely. And there she would invite a person to sculpt the family from their point of view, from that person's point of view. And then she would have that person look at them and reflect. And so what you've got is an embodied metaphor. And now I look at it and I go, oh my gosh, when I see my my brother towering over me, it just brings back those memories of feeling like I was always scared of him. Or, oh, my gosh, when I see my mother sort of sitting and and waiting for someone to come to her, I can see how isolated she felt. And it's just a beautiful way of allowing people to really see what their perceptions are and to be moved by them. And when, when you've got that externalization, you can be moved by things in such a different way. Some people are good at visualizing. And so you can have them visualize things. But what Satir used to do. I mean, I remember seeing her back in the 70s doing that. And it was amazing to watch. And we would all just sit there and go, wow, that's incredible work. And so TheraPlay, I think, has those components to it. You know, mm-hmm. where you're giving people a new experience in the here and now that can begin to counter some of their perceptions or memories from the past or allow them to feel the things that they didn't feel safe enough to feel back then and release that. Yes. That's so important to do. Yeah. So in keeping um, with this idea of attachment, TheraPlay, the Attachment Theory and Action podcast, I was wondering about Bowlby's original term, the internal working model. Exactly. Yes. And I was thinking about, oh, I want to hear from you how use of symbolism and metaphor has, you know, brought that alive for people or helped people bring um, access parts of self and awareness that they can't put into words. Absolutely. But that is being driven by that internal working model. So yeah, and I've worked a lot with couples, for example, and I've asked them to find miniatures that show what they're looking for at this particular moment in time from each other. And sometimes what that turns out to be are just a variety of metaphors, like a, like a, um, I'm thinking of the word, hang on a second, uh, when there's a fire and there's a fire hydrant. So mm-hmm. somebody put down a fire hydrant and then the, the partner, be, what is the fire hydrant? Why do you need to have something 
nearby as a resource, this is a safe environment. And then that person might say, well, when I grew up, we had to make sure there was a fire hydrant because we felt that there could be a fire at any moment. And so that was something I grew up thinking. And now I'm bringing some of that fearful anticipation into this relationship. May not be with all of those words that get said, but the idea yes. that's conveyed is, or, or somebody will put a brick wall down and the partner will go, I, I feel the brick wall. I, I, I come up against the brick wall. I need to understand why the brick wall is there. And so then we might go to that metaphor and say, talk a little bit about the brick wall. In what way does that brick wall serve you? How long has that brick wall been there? How did it get put up? How, who was involved in putting that up? And then the person will begin to talk about how, when I was little, you know, I started feeling injured by, by my dad, let's say, and it was emotional abuse. It wasn't physical abuse, but every time that would happen, I'd put another layer, another brick up. And then it just kept getting taller and taller. And I noticed in school that sometimes people would say to me, you know, you're so removed from us. We want you to, to, why are you so far away? You know, we can't seem to get through or whatever. And then that's because the brick wall was there. And then we would talk about what would it take for that brick wall to begin to come down? If you took one brick off the top and you just peeked out, what would that feel like? And so that's mm-hmm. the work that you do between uh, partners in using a metaphor, which can be really very powerful. And you're really addressing internal working model. The world is dangerous. I need to keep this brick wall up. But you're also allowing the other person to see this got built a long time ago. It's not about you. It's just that in a relationship, I expect, (laughs) excuse me, that someone might hurt me. And so just getting to that stuff in a visual way is wonderful. And sometimes I had a couple once and I said, you know what, just to make this a little bit more visible, let's do the putting up of the wall with the bricks, the cardboard bricks. And so I had the person start and just he would call each of the bricks something or some experience or and it got taller and taller. And then, (laughs) excuse me, the partner would say. See, now I can't see you as well. And now I can't really read your your body cues. And now I, I have to really kind of move to, to look over the thing to get to you. And I feel so isolated now. And I'll never forget that this person took like in, in what's that game? Ten, Jenga? Jenga, yeah. <laughs> took one of the things out and put his hand through it. And then she grabbed his hand on the other side. Oh, I love that. And then they take that now back into their into their mindset as a visualization of, yes, you can remove the the little bricks individually and make contact and make contact in a safe way. And eventually what she wanted, the partner was, she wanted both hands out. And so they did that as well. But little by little, there was less need for that brick wall. So sometimes Mm -hmm. that kind of work, again, there's not a lot of words attached to it. We sometimes will just talk about what that was like for them afterwards can be so powerful. Um, Cause I just think sometimes we're just really looking for the Q and a, and I just find that so limiting, 
you know, in terms of what people can really say to us. That's why I love the play genogram as well, because there's a, a part in it where you talk about relationship. And so between you and your mom and you and your dad and you and your brothers, pick something that shows me what the relationship is like. And then you get a really interesting sense of, you know, there's a warrior or, you know, there's a deer that's sleeping or whatever it may be, but it's so much richer. And then after the, the genogram, sometimes with a big family, I've said, okay, now I want everyone to pick a figure that they chose and I want you to show it to me in your body and you get them to stand up like the warrior or the superhero or whatever it may be. And it's wonderful to look and see them embodying that image. And what words would you use that would fit this particular pose? And then I might say, now in character, I want you to come up with a story that involves all the characters. And the story has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. So all of these are ways that you're taking these metaphors and getting them more and more um, meaningful to the person. It's going deeper and deeper each time you move through. If a child makes a, a sand castle in, in the tray, I might say, I wonder what it's like to go inside that castle. And I might say, maybe you can draw me a picture of the inside of the castle. And sometimes just moving it, the metaphor from one medium to another can be really revealing. But these are the ways that I've always found most interesting and powerful to work much more than the verbal therapy process that we're trained in. And that's always there. I mean, I use it for sure. Yes. I just find that this work, the right hemisphere of the brain work is often neglected or, or overlooked and to bring it in and to integrate it with everything else is just really a, an amazing process. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking actually of some metaphors here while you're talking. So I was you know, thinking about these different domains of experience inside of us and that they're, you know, disconnected and like the metaphors, like put these like stepping stones, like in between them was one thing I was thinking about um, because they, you know, a lot of what we talk about in, in attachment theory is having a coherent autobiographical narrative. So I feel like the metaphors bring coherency to these disenfranchised or disconnected or not fully metabolized experiences. Yes. And I just think, you know, that is so wonderful that allows a coherent narrative. It's like there were just these spaces in between that lack coherency um, that can't be filled in with words or they would be. I mean, that's the crux of it, right? That Um, is absolutely right. If people had that insight and understood things or understood their behavior in the context of their experiences, then they would report that. Yes. What they often feel is why is this happening to me and why do I feel this way? And they're disconnected from the rest of their life experiences. So, yeah, that's a perfect way of putting it. I was thinking about this um, thing that I ask families to do, which is called an aquarium. And I think I may have even spoken to you about the aquarium, but I just find it so 
interesting to watch how you can have a family present during intake and just give you one whole story, which is the rehearsed story. Yes. Uh, and then you go and do a family aquarium and completely other issues come up, but it really is the stuff that's underneath the surface and that yes. is rehearsed. Yes. And it's such a simple thing to do where you ask people to draw a fish, any fish at all. And so you sit down with the family and you see a little guy who maybe starts making a shark with sharp teeth. And you see a mom who's making like a little small fish and the dad's making a big one or vice versa. Um, and so the individual projective piece of that is interesting in and of itself, how decorated it is, how invested they get in it. But then the second part of the task <clears throat> is on a blue poster board, I say to them, you have to decide as a family what kind of an aquarium it's going to be where the fish are going to live together. And the second part is you have to decide where the fish are going to go vis-a-vis -vis each other. And so that small little thing can lead to all kinds of revelations where I was working with these two little girls <clears throat> and the dad kept putting his, the what would you call it, his little face, fish face, Mm -hmm. kind of right up to theirs and they're backing up and he's ah. moving in and he can't seem to back off. <laughs> and finally they kind of arrived at a sort of agreement that he would back up a little and they would come forward a little and it still felt too close to them. And at the end they took buttons and they put a whole barrier between him and them, but it allowed them to say, dad, you're pushing too hard. And he was feeling very guilty because they'd been abused under his watch by the yes. brother. And so I could understand his guilt and he wants to now overcompensate for not having seen what was going on, but he was pushing his girls away. So just that little moment in the aquarium mm. project was very telling and it allowed us to move forward and mm -hmm. to make some, some changes in the relationships that they were having and get the mom more involved who was over here on the other corner, almost leaving the aquarium. So all of these things come forward that show, you know, how nurtured the fish feel or are they under attack or is somebody trying to get them out of the sea, the, the aquarium, I mean, or is there a temperature? Mm -hmm. I mean, people do amazing things, but this is from a deeper level, right? Mm -hmm. And this is the stuff that, gee, they didn't really want to tell you. One mom put on, um, made on the picture of her fish, she had three buttons. And I said, tell me about these. And she said, well, those are really air bubbles. And it's because I just want to make sure everyone knows I'm still alive. And wow, thought, wow that was a really big thing to say. But then wow. when we went over to her husband, she put three things on his fish. And I thought, I guess she wants to make sure that People know he's alive too, but I didn't say anything. I just said, tell me about these. And she said, well, I put them there because, but those aren't air bubbles. That's just hiccups because he's drunk all the time. And so she kind of outed his alcoholism in a way. And then he took a piece of yarn and put it between himself on the top of the aquarium and his family on the bottom. And this was a guy who was on his way out. And it yes. was interesting, his fish was going to the left and the other two were going to the right. And so yeah. all of that was apparent in the aquarium project where in the intake, they said, well, we're concerned about our daughter who's overeating. And so we want her to get more healthy about her food choices. So we're here to see if we can help her with her health and her weight management.
Mm-hmm. Completely mm-hmm. different. Yes. Than what happened in this aquarium. So, yes. Well, I'm sure a lot of listeners probably because different presenters use it in their PowerPoint, this, you know, this, this iceberg and, and you see something above the water and oh, then yeah. the whole big piece under the iceberg, you know, so, so yeah. to me that it's like the, the aquarium is what, you know, they were showing the underneath the iceberg versus, you know, the top that, you know, it's just this rote thing that we tell and, you know, half of it might even be somebody else, how they've interpreted their problem. Like who knows? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and then, you know, I think the other thing in that, example again that your point it's a good thing you didn't say what the bubbles were on the other fish you had an idea but you had to restrain yourself yes 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 i know we only have five minutes left but i just there's there's one more thing i really wanted to ask you about in this episode so we'll see what can be said about it in in five minutes and that is um the use of storytelling and metaphorical stories and you know i'm thinking there's one very simple one that's often brought up with children that have a history of trauma and disrupted attachment, the wall around the heart story, you know, that some children build a wall around their heart and it protected them, et cetera. You know, there's many variations of it, but what, what thoughts do you have about the use of metaphorical stories in, in work? Well, again, I think they're wonderful if you're gifted in that way. And of course, you know, I love the work of Joyce Mills in particular, because I think she's just gifted at storytelling and trying to, I mean, and that is, you know, in, in sociological terms, that's how people have taught for years and years and years. And this is how we try to convey uh, meaning to people. And it's too bad we've gotten away from doing more of that. But I love storytelling and, you know, use a lot of different techniques. One where I'm the storyteller, one where I invite the child or the family to be the storytellers. And then we just stay with the story and we work with the story. So I totally love it. Again, not all of us are gifted in that idea or sometimes we we wake up and we're flat but i've taught classes where i say to people look here's the issue you want to convey to the child make up a story that would convey that meaning and so Mm -hmm. they really honestly there's a lot of creativity that goes untapped in clinicians that they could be using and it just again is an invitation to come into a different place where people don't have to feel so guarded about things that's the whole idea behind metaphors is you want to sidestep, go in the side door. You don't, you don't knock down the front door because those defenses are there for good reason, you know? And so I think it's really important to be able to, again, integrate as much as you can. Um, the butterfly wisdom that, that Joyce Mills put together. I love that. And teenagers love that kind of work. And there's so many good storytelling cards where kids can begin a story. And then in a group setting, you can go from person to person person that adds. And yeah, I love storytelling. And actually, in my own professional life, I've really come to the conclusion that in my public speaking, that's what I do mostly is tell stories. You know, Mm -hmm. that's how I convey meaning. And that's what how I, you know, kind of lighten up something or make it um, something that people can resonate with because it is a story that's very compelling at, at its base. So I'm quite the storyteller and love storytelling. 
and think everyone should, you know, really practice it and try it out. And the beautiful books, for example, The Invisible String. Um, I love that book. And and I, I know that she does workshops now and teaches things. But the first thought I had was yarn and having everyone in a family hold a piece of yarn and not go around and cut it. And they would all make bracelets out of the same piece of yarn. Oh, that's so beautiful. So great. And then they would just have it on, you know, and they knew that every other person in their family. Oh, I love that. Even though they were in foster care and maybe they wouldn't see that person for a long time. So things like that, that just, I'm always looking for ways to make things concrete so that people can see them and experience them differently and really uh, resonate and reflect. And then again, hopefully that step towards more meaning for them. Yeah, it's this interesting, you know, concrete, but not in a verbal way that's jarring. I'm, I'm finding this, you know, this this balance so interesting because you've mentioned several times how jarring words can be. And I was thinking about so many times when I've seen, experienced it myself or seen it in supervision words being too jarring and immediately the defensive strategies like like it's almost like you can see the defenses activated and then it's all over at least for that moment because they're they're not coming down they're not coming um and you know this feeling you you never know what's going to trigger that so right yeah yeah just your thought of the gentleness of working slowly with these metaphors they're concrete but they're gentle they're like- gentle and people can do different things they can journal about the metaphor they did um you can have i did them- have that on my list but i'm like oh my gosh we i can't bring that up now <laughs> yeah yeah you can do all kinds of things with it you just have to really keep in the back of your mind that you're not trying to take a boulder to the front door you're really trying to gently go in the side doors and just knock gently and have people receptive and they yes. take their own time you know so you have yeah. to work for them and not go ahead of them, not rush ahead of them. That would be kind of the bottom line for most things I try to do is yes. not, not rush ahead of people. Yes. Well, uh, as we're closing out here, I would be remiss if I didn't. I, I also wanted to say you know, thank you so much for um, modeling to you know peers and those newer to the field continued learning you know that is one of the things that there's so many things that you've contributed in so many ways you're so impressive dr gill i mean we all just think you're so fabulous but one thing that has really stood out to me is how you you might be in a workshop I go to. You're there as a participant um, and not taking on this. Well, I have expert status now. So now I just go tell other people what to do. It's just so refreshing and wonderful. And I love it. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. I do. I feel strongly about that, that learning is so important. And I'm uh, every year I pick something to dive deep into. So. Last year, I became a certified grief educator. 
And that was because I was really struggling with grief and had had a lot of losses and really wanted to learn for myself, but also be available to others. And so it's been really a very meaningful process, but that was a decision I made and, you know, let's do this. And now I'm studying some other stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Of course, we don't have time to go into it. I know, but I think that grief underlies so much of our work. I mean, really, it. well, I guess it's a piece of almost everything. It's very universal, very universal. And yet we have a, a resistance about, you know, addressing it, speaking about it, thinking about it, feeling about it. Especially in our culture here in the United States. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's really extreme. So, Dr. Gill, I know you, where are you now? I know you, I I told people in the opening, you have, you know, the Gill Institute and your Starbright learning center i've been thrilled to have been able to be there and teach their play and i know you went to florida you know um for some life changes like where do we find you what are you doing well yeah i do i do run the gill institute virtually with my yes which that's what's so beautiful these days is you can do that Absolutely. And that's with my partner, Miriam Golden. And then Miriam now owns Starbright Training Institute. So she's okay. that, but I teach there. And then now I'm in Florida and I'm in okay. Palm, Palm Beach Gardens. I just moved a week ago. And this is now my goals for 2022 were to simplify and to take roots. And so now in this home, I'm closer to my family. So my sister is here. My best friend is here. Oh, love it. Turns out Dee Dee, remember Dee Dee from Self-Esteem? Yes. I think she's about 10 minutes down the road. So I'm oh, excited, I love to, that. excited to reconnect with her. So yes. I, I did, where I was, I just didn't have enough social contact with people. So I'm mm-hmm. very happy to see my family and my friends and I feel a little better here. Good, good, yeah. good. Well, thank you so much, um, not just for this interview, but for your incredible contributions all these years. Um, not only in training clinicians, but to the field of child abuse and working um, to combat trauma in children. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for doing this and asking me. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory.